0: Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast with me, Colette Allen. Today's podcast will address the protests taking place in America in response to the death of George Floyd, the UK Supreme Court decision on the Section 4 defense of the Defamation Act in Seraphin and Makerwicks, and the Attorney General Suella Braverman's tweets in defense of Dominic Cummings' breach of the lockdown rules. I'm currently joined by Paul and Tom, and later on in the podcast I'm joined by Nick Allard, a media law and government relations specialist from America to discuss the protests further especially with relation to the First Amendment rights in play. Hi, Tom and Paul.
1: Hi, Colour. How are you both? Yeah, fine, thank you. Uh,
0: so if we start with Seraphin, I'll just provide a, a quick background for our listeners. Uh, this is a Supreme Court judgment that came out this week in relation to a libel case. The first instance trial took place in 2017, heard by Mr Justice Jay where the claimant disputed various accusations of dishonesty and fraud within charitable institutions, as well as allegations of inappropriate conduct with women. Jay held that the defendant was successful on a Section 4 public interest offence, despite not putting the allegations to the claimant before publication, The Court of Appeal delivered a diametrically opposed judgment to the trial judge and the Supreme Court has now issued a retrial with some pretty strong indication as to how they want the new trial to interpret Section 4. Would you say that's a fair analysis?
2: Yes. Um, The Supreme Court has taken the opportunity to clarify the interpretation of the Section 4 defense that is to be preferred. Um, It's perhaps a little unusual that the Supreme Court's done it when they're not actually reviewing a decision on Section 4 um, itself because ultimately they remitted the case for a retrial. But um, it's the first opportunity the Supreme Court's had to talk about Section 4 since the Defamation Act 2013 came into force and that's been... Well, six years since it came into force, so six and a half years. Um, it's an important opportunity to try to work out how this defence functions, and uh, regular listeners familiar with the law will know that Section 4 replaced what we used to know as the Reynolds defence uh, of publication on a matter of public interest. Um, and the Reynolds defence featured a, a checklist of matters that the court should take into account that would indicate responsible journalism on behalf of the defendant. Now, it was made quite clear early on in the Reynolds line of authorities that this checklist was not actually a checklist uh, according to which everything had to be checked off, but they were merely indicative of factors that ought to be considered by responsible journalists in the course of their activities. Um, Section 4 of the Defamation Act abolishes the Reynolds defence, and uh, it does not replicate that checklist of factors. Nevertheless, in seraphim, the Court of Appeal had brought those factors back into play and seems to have treated them rather like a checklist. Um, And essentially what the Supreme Court has done is said, no, they are not to be used as a checklist. They might have relevance and they can help you to interpret what uh, reasonable belief that publications in the public interest means in practice for a journalist, but they are not to be treated as uh, boxes to be ticked, all of which must be ticked.
1: Yeah. In other words, they have le-showed it. If I can use le-show as a verb here. I like that.
0: Do you think the uh, old Reynolds criteria, though, has any... Standing for the reasonable belief aspect of section four b I mean the reasonable belief is obviously it's subjective, so the Reynolds criteria can help a judge determine whether that whether there was reasonable belief.
2: Yes, the factors are relevant um, the factors are there to under the Reynolds terminology determine whether a journalist has behaved responsibly. We don't quite use that terminology anymore, but the principle still applies a journalist who has reasonable belief in public that publication is in the public interest will be a journalist who has behaved responsibly. And so that reasonable belief can be informed by the same sorts of activities that were uh, the subject of the old Reynolds list of factors, things like seeking comment from the claimant before publishing the story seeking to ensure that uh, matters of fact that are alleged have been verified, ideally by multiple sources. It's not that they all have to be checked off, but the more of them that are present, the more it's likely the journalist has behaved responsibly, and thus that the belief that they have that publications in the public interest is more likely to be reasonable.
1: Yeah, and just to add to that, I think the other thing to draw out from this is the um the Supreme Court's emphasis on a return to um, convention principles. Um, because Lord Wilson did say something about um, the common law defense being um, developed and an extension of uh, the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, in other words, the way that the European Court of Human Rights has understood um, uh, this idea of uh, responsible journalism in a public interest speech case. So we can still use phrases like responsible journalism, I think. So long as we're making it clear that this is a reference to the Strasbourg jurisprudence rather than uh, us trying to uh, reintroduce Reynolds, uh, given that um, the actors will over. it.
0: Well, thank you for that. Um, if we now move on to the Attorney General Suella Braverman's tweet about Dominic Cummings. Um, so these were, this is a tweet that she put out uh, over the weekend of the story breaking that Dominic Cummings had driven to Durham to, uh, in breach of lockdown rules to uh, meet his elderly parents. And uh, she tweeted, and I quote, Protections, protection of one's family is what any good parent does. She's been accused of undermining impartiality of her role and of the rule of law by the Shadow Office General Ellie Reeves for this tweet. How is this undermining any rule of law if there's no trial against Cummings at the moment? Surely she's not under any duty to speak impartially.
2: Yeah, we're in this mad situation where if Dominic Cummings were subsequently to be arrested and charged which is uh, highly unlikely. Durham police have said they're not going to take any further action. But if there were a decision, you know, some maybe some new evidence came to light and he were to be charged, proceedings against him would then be active within the meaning of the laws of contempt of court. And if Suella Braverman were to repeat her tweet during a period in which um, the proceedings were active then she would probably have to initiate contempt of court proceedings against herself in her role as Attorney General. And that's why this is so uh, important, because if if somebody were to act in the same way that she's done once proceedings had become active, then as Attorney General, she has to initiate the proceedings, but as an individual politician, she's already done the same thing, at least substantively, in terms of the message she's putting across. The other point, more generally is that um as the attorney general has oversight the crown prosecution service any decision to review whether or not to press charges and so forth uh, can come from the attorney general and um reviewing decisions not to charge likewise can be initiated the review can be initiated by the attorney general At an even more basic level, the Attorney-General is supposed to occupy a unique position in the Cabinet. Yes, they're a government uh, minister, but they're meant to have a degree of independence that enables them to speak impartially on matters of legal significance. The the Attorney-General is supposed to be the one who can speak truth to power. And there is quite a lot of reaction against what is seen to be towing a party line, And clearly the Conservative Party whips, we know the Conservative Party whips, um, instructed ministers to defend Cummings. The the, the Attorney General, who's meant to have this degree of impartiality and be able to speak truth to power, is the one out there tweeting, towing the party line to protect an advisor to the government. Um, And to say nothing of that hell happening in the middle of a crisis where the government needs maximum trust from the people. Um, So those are the reasons why she's been accused by a number of people, including both the Shadow Solicitor General and the Shadow Attorney General of undermining her own role. I've seen some prominent uh, lawyers on Twitter making exactly the same point from a a non-partisan perspective.
0: So now if we turn to the US and the protests uh, that are happening there, uh, I'm discussing this in further detail with Nick. But uh, is there anything that, uh, Tom and Paul, you'd like to pick up on, especially with the arrest of journalists and the way that Trump has continued his campaign against the media throughout the current crisis?
2: Leaving aside, though it's not at all comfortable to leave aside the, the broader context of uh, how this began um, with the obviously brutal murder of George Floyd and the wider Black Lives Matters movement, which you know, deserves to be given uh, the attention that it is finally and finally seems to be getting. Um, thinking about the journalism involved here, and just for the sake of time, focusing on that, um, we're seeing things that I've not seen in my lifetime in the United States. Um, we're seeing journalists being shot by American police officers, and some of the shots are with rubber bullets, others are with the so-called beanbag rounds. Um, these are some things that are supposed to be non-lethal, but they are still uh, enormously dangerous and can be lethal, uh, especially at close range. We've had journalists being hospitalized, we've had journalists, uh, I've seen one report today of a journalist who's lost their sight in one eye, having been hit by a, a supposedly non-lethal round, um, but leaving aside the the type of ammunition, you've got police officers training their guns on journalists who are identifying themselves as journalists and pulling the trigger. And I think when that starts to happen, then discussions about free speech um, take on a very different meaning to any that we've had about free speech in the United States before. Um We're not talking about freedom to express oneself and be free from sanction or be free from contempt of court or be free from libel suits. We're talking about freedom to report the truth and not be shot at. Um, I, I, I think I will speak for pretty much everybody in this field, in this country looking on. And when I say I look on at this in absolute horror.
1: I endorse everything that Tom uh, has just said. Uh, he's absolutely right. And if I could have um, said it as eloquently uh, as as he has, I would have done. Uh, but one thing it does uh, make me think of, which is uh, entirely uh, of a lesser order in many ways, uh, this does, again, raise that question of the free speech status of tweets, of access to social media, which crop up from time to time and we we sort of let them go and we never really engage with them. Um, And the the question that we do keep coming back to is the free speech status of Donald Trump's uh, tweets, for example, which is something I'm particularly interested in. And for me, um, Twitter is entitled to intervene, uh, to suppress uh, any speech by Donald Trump which doesn't satisfy Uh, its own in-house rules yeah it's just like twitter has invited donald trump to come round to their house if we put it in an offline um uh context and he's saying things that they don't like and they're entitled to ask him to leave or to shut up or or censor him in some other way
0: and i think on that note we'll turn our attention fully to the us thank you both the seismic protests currently taking place in America in response to the death of George Floyd at the hand of white police officers has captured the world's attention. Countries are watching American citizens undertake the biggest demonstration of their right to free speech, protest and petition the government since the civil rights movement as they campaign against systemic racism. This display of civilian rights has inspired other countries, including the UK, to march in solidarity and critically assess their own broken systems. The media, and social media in particular, has played a crucial part in the global Black Lives Matter movement. But press freedom has been caught in the crossfire. Journalists are being deliberately attacked by police in the US as they work to cover the unrest. And social media companies have been targeted by presidential executive orders. To discuss this with me today, I am joined by Nick Allard, a preeminent American lawyer in the fields of government relations, internet law, new media, privacy, technology and communications law. He has decades of experience in law, as a senior partner at three of the world's most highly regarded law firms, and higher education as the dean and former president of Brooklyn Law School. Nick is a widely published author and commentator. His writings frequently appear in prominent journals, newspapers, and new media, such as Bloomberg Business News, Reuters, Politico, The Hill, The Washington Post.
3: Hi, Nick. Good morning, Colette, and thank you for having me. Uh, I almost recognize that guy. Begin by saying that my families and my hearts and and uh, best wishes not only go to all our fellow Americans but also to our many many friends and the people of of Britain. I look forward to the day when we can get back and you know at this time of year read the newspaper at ten o'clock at night with a pint outside at a pub.
0: Ah, uh, well, there's no pints being had outside in pubs here at the moment, so you're not missing out on much. Okay. I'm looking forward to those days too. So the anti-press rhetoric that we're seeing in the current protests is not a new feature. Uh, We've seen this throughout the Trump presidency and now the US president continues to antagonize journalists, referring to them even in the midst of the crisis as the mainstream media and fake news. Do you think that the persistent anti-press rhetoric that has been such a feature of the Trump administration has impacted the reporting Or indeed, the public perception of the current protests.
3: Well, words matter, and I think it certainly does have an impact Uh, significantly. uh, You know, there's no new thing under the sun. Uh, The 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 actual jargon um, that's used, including "enemy of the people." uh, If you Google that, if you look it up, uh, if you don't know, "enemy of the people" is the and the anti press rhetoric is right out of the autocrat's tool bag and it's the thing that the leaders of the communist uh soviet movement and uh the fascists in europe uh before world war ii use regularly to demonize uh their adversaries uh in the press that they perceive are trying to hold them accountable it it really is very difficult you know the free press is uh a big part of modern democracy. It is uh, core to our constitutional system of government under law, and it is one of the uh, cherished and most important aspects of our First Amendment designed to keep government in check. Uh, It's unpleasant and uncomfortable, and like democracy, it can be very sloppy. But um, calling it out and challenging it as fake, uh, describing the press and journalists as enemy of the people, uh, and identifying preferred outlets versus ones that are to be avoided uh, with because they have the ta- tag, lame street media, all of this matters and has an impact. It is irresponsible for uh, somebody who is. In a position of power and authority to demonize or identify as enemies uh, or to suggest that uh, people without any basis at all do not have the best interests of the country and their neighbors uh, at stake. And I know this from my government service firsthand because there are people uh, in the world who take these messages very seriously and can act out upon them. And so by demonizing the press, another phenomena is is that it makes their very important work, which is crucial to a constitutional democracy, it puts them at personal risk. And so it is not um, really uh, an attribute of leadership that should be emulated.
0: This... This demonising that you speak of—it's an incredibly effective political tool, isn't it? Because it basically establishes doubt in anything that's reported, and is a major disruption to the right to information, which is obviously guaranteed in America under the First Amendment. Do you think there's any way that the law can correct this in the era of fake news?
3: Well, I'm a firm believer that the solution, or uh, the answer to false speech or limitation of speech is more speech. And so I think any time that the law tries to regulate or limit or restrict speech, it not only runs into pre existing basic constitutional limitations, but it can uh, do more, more harm than good. But over the long course of time, hopefully, with the proliferation of publishers and the proliferation of forums, Um, people can receive alternative information and form their own views. I think we're seeing that right now in America. Now, the problem though is, is that we're in new territory as technology evolves. And arguably, uh, people are receiving more information um, in a blinded sense that it comes from Uh, sources that they want to hear from and that may not be as uh, traditionally diverse or edited or fact-checked as others, Uh, how that all sorts out will be determined in a very rough and tumble way. And that is what we are seeing right now, which is a very vigorous public debate as to what to do uh, in an age of new media.
0: That that leads... very nicely into, I think you've already alluded to it, the Trump and Twitter feud that's happening right now. Um, And I think I'd like to get your thoughts on that. If you don't mind, I'll just quickly give a brief timeline of the events that have led up to this just for listeners. So a couple of weeks ago, Trump tweeted about male voting fraud that was fact-checked by Twitter Um, This prompted Trump to sign an executive order to moderate Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act 1996, with the aim to expose social media platforms to liability. And on the 28th of May, the president famously tweeted, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. And Twitter shielded this tweet from public view, meaning readers had to click through a warning that the tweet they wanted to access violated Twitter's policy on glorifying violence. Uh, the tweet was left online because the company believed that it was important for the public interest for it to be accessible. But by even blocking it in the first place, they were curating what users see in a way that they haven't really done before. And I think that's definitely what you're talking about now this debate between how we handle online platforms and whether they uh, should be held liable in these questions. And, and I wonder. What your thoughts are on that, whether you think that it was appropriate for Twitter to have stepped
3: in? Well, let me walk you right through that. That's a wonderful background um, that you've offered, Councillor. So we're actually seeing this debate played out uh, in a in a very interesting way. So you have the Twitter approach, which you described, which is basically to label not all, but curated um uh, twits, I mean tweets, that um, are problematic and don't conform to its pre-existing terms and conditions for use, which are basically the marquee of Tweensbury rules that all internet service providers or most have in place, which are the conditions for using their platform and their forum. Uh, So so that's sort of the middle approach. I just read today that a more uh, extreme approach is by SNAP, which has actually taken down the president's, um, uh, submissions to SNAP and expressed the reason why. And then on the other end of the spectrum is, uh, Mark Zuckerberg's, um, very, uh, attention grabbing approach, which is, you know, thoughtfully expressed, but also very controversial, controversial, um, that they will not take it down and just allow the rough and tumble debate of the open forum uh to provide the counterbalance to what is expressed so that's the f- so what you're seeing and what I'm trying to explain is that right there with three major outlets you have three very different approaches and we- and so what we are in the midst of, and it's useful to think about this, is we are right in the midst of a very public sloppy, vigorous, with heartfelt views on all ends of the spectrum uh, attempt to deal with the problem of a speech which is objectionable or suspect or controversial in some people's eyes and what this runs up against in america is in the united states i should say is that first we our first amendment which provides freedom of speech and is one of the mainstays of other guarantees freedom of the press freedom to assemble and so on and express your views freedom to petition the government all of those things are meant to be checks on government and For people who do not focus on this, it's useful to remember that the First Amendment rights are limitations on the government. They are meant to limit, unbridled, and hold the government accountable. Uh, And so that's one of the guardrails. Uh, The other one is our uh, fairly recent body of law. It's only 130 years old or so. Uh, Of privacy law that eventually by the 1960s was determined to be uh, a, a constitutional right that flows from the First Amendment and other parts of the Constitution. So these are very difficult areas. And what this, in essence, leads to is that the law will have to unfold over time, not this minute, not in a week, but over time, into developing and shaping new guardrails which possibly redefine or reconsider existing constitutional um, applications. But also, it's something classically, because it's fundamentally political, that Congress, United States federal government, that Congress needs to adopt, uh, 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 consider. You mentioned Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. Let me read to you, it's a very brief passage, the relevant portion. No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. In other words, it makes internet service providers and people like Twitter, Facebook, uh, and Snap um, gives them immunity from liability for the content of what is carried or posted on their platforms. It's The idea is that they are neutral forums, not editors. They're not responsible, uh, say, as a newspaper would be for the content of an article or as a, a, a private speaker would be under other circumstances. Uh, and so, you know, this is the key thing. Now, the irony, and I think you're—I'm I'm going to guess, but I'm anticipating—President Trump, uh, in reaction, it's not surprising given his approach to most things, threatened to take away this immunity, which was passed at a time early on when the internet was just coming into its own, and when. The promotion uh, and and latitude that that immunity afforded was considered one of the big reasons for um, justifying the immunity, which was to enable um, the growth of the internet and the full development of cyber business and cyber technology and so on. And we may have been past that, but in any event, he threatened to take that immunity away perversely, um, I don't think that he has If he if it's if he means it, if it isn't just an empty bluster or threat, but if he means it, it's not particularly considered because even if it would have a chance of passing Congress, eliminating the Section 230 uh, immunity, which, parenthetically, in my view, uh, is not likely to happen anytime soon, uh, even if it was possible and he cannot do it by executive order. in my view, uh, it would require congressional legislation to eliminate Section 230 or amend it, Um, it would have exactly the opposite effect, and why? If the immunity that Section 230 provides were eliminated, then the private internet service providers would have to be more diligent and more restrictive uh, in order to protect themselves from claims about say, if somebody uh, posted insightful language which arguably induced violence, then the victim of violence could claim that the internet service provider was responsible if um, you know somebody felt they were defamed by the false accusation of committing a murder when uh, it is demonstrated that they were hundreds of miles away from where um the person died at the time uh, of the incident, then arguably uh, there could be claims that the company were uh, would be subjected to. So uh, the perverse idea is that even if elimination of this immunity at this particular moment could be accomplished, that it would have the exact opposite effect. It would make internet service providers much more careful and restrictive in what um, they allowed to continue to be posted on their platforms.
0: But are we not seeing this move happen anyway? I mean, definitely with the whole shooting and looting tweets and uh, Zuckerberg's proposed independent oversight board for Facebook and also the way that algorithms are directing Facebook and Twitter users towards World Health Organization sites when it comes to COVID in an attempt to tackle misinformation – We can hardly say that these platforms aren't providing some sort of publishing role here because they are curating what users see.
3: That's a very good and fair point. And I think what you're really implying, whether intentioned or not, is that in reality, the solutions that will be pursued to this, the the real and perceived problems posed by, internet content, whether they're false or true, whether they're uh, vigorously uh, proposed or actually harmful in some social way, um, these are going to be worked out, uh, at least in the first instance for a significant period of time, by private actors, by businesses and people, by consumers choosing which outlets they trust and want to abide by uh And you know there is lots of precedent for this um i i for example um we have plenty of examples where um companies um earn reputations for being reliable for having good quality products and so on, and that is determined by the you know free uh, open swing of of the of the marketplace um we have plenty of instances where we have third-party, um, objective expert credentialers. You know the good housekeeping seal of approval, the uh, organizations that certify the safety of electronic products. Uh, you know these kinds of organizations. You know the private sector is very able. Um, to help provide some guidance in this area, uh, you know my personal bias is that when it comes to free speech in the and the media we 've got to be very careful in picking winners and losers and uh, I believe that the approach which I take on face value and I respect the good faith uh, uh, of all of the three different companies that have come to very different outcomes. Um, lay out really a full range of different approaches by the providers themselves. It's really up to the public and maybe to others to comment and to help us all decide how best we can in this difficult, complicated world that we live in, uh, determine where the truth is. Now, in all of this, all of this, one of the things that is becoming apparent is that the lawyer's work is never done. So, so long as we remain in a uh, living in a democratic society of limited government under the rule of law, these issues are going to be vigorously, forcefully debated and worked out, sometimes in a time-consuming and often a very sloppy fashion but they are going to be worked out hand in glove, cheek and jowl, uh, with lawyers helping us find our way.
0: I think that's uh, a brilliant note to end on. Thank you very much for joining me on this, Nick. Just, just finally, if you were going to pick and approach—Twitter's, Facebook's, Snapchats—which one do you personally think is the most appropriate?
3: I don't have an answer for that, and I'm not ducking the question.
0: The lawyer's answer?
3: No, 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 no. I, I really because. I think the answer the answer depends, which is really a classic lawyer's answer um, so it really depends I think a very interesting um, alternative to those three is that the the idea of curating independent organizations, perhaps international ones or you know, boards uh, who review such things that people can turn to uh, to evaluate uh, reliable information. Uh, the trouble that I think about when I think about this and may reveal my own Luddite tendencies uh, and lack of affinity for algorithms and the speed of uh, digital technology is that how would those expert Boards work in real time, uh, so that the problem is not up and down by the time they're able to reach a decision. But perhaps that can be worked out. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm going to give you an answer. I think that the best approach is all of the above. Uh, you know, you gave me A, B, and C to pick from: Snap, Facebook, and Twitter and i think the answer is d all of the above because by them taking these three different approaches we have an opportunity to see which of those approaches work what adjustments might be made uh which might be best and what more would remain uh to be done so as churchill think say, i think said very famously uh democracy is the worst of all systems until you consider the alternatives. So what we're left with is um, somewhat of a sloppy, messy, messy, disorganized process, but it's one that's served us well so far, and I hope will, and I believe will serve us well in the long run in the future.
0: Nick Allard, thank you very much for joining me.
3: It's a pleasure and a privilege. I hope that was useful to you, and I wish you all the best. And I say hello to our many friends in the bar, in the courts and in the schools in England and I wish you all the best in the future.